Hey everybody, welcome to Tone Benders. My name's Tim Muirhead and I will be your host today. With me today is Teresa Morrow. Hey Teresa, how are you doing? Hi Tim, good. You can follow the podcast on Twitter via at the Tone Benders. And what do we have up for today, Teresa? Uh, today we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be listening to a panel discussion that was recorded back in September uh, in Los Angeles. So this was an event that was put together by the Sound Girls organization. And it was hosted at Sony in Los Angeles, the big Sony studios. And the panel was called Career Paths in Post-Production Audio. So this was a amazing panel made up of some of the most, I would say, successful women working in post-production audio in L.A. in television and film and giving them an opportunity to talk about their career paths and their perspectives on how they have made their way in the business. And on that panel was April Tucker, who is with us right now. Hey, April. Thanks for coming on with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, can you tell me a bit about this event? Uh, who is who is in the audience as well as uh, how it came together? Well, we came together with um, Tom McCarthy of Sony and Amory Slack, who's with MPSE, and basically just wanted to have an event where we talked about how to start a career in sound, in post-production sound for women. And so we kind you know, we kind of just got these panelists together and the panelists changed two or three times. You know, it's hard just to, to find people who um, who schedule that can make it. And then we really didn't have a whole lot planned in terms of the questions. And uh, Anne-Marie Slack was the one moderating. Who was it pitched towards f to be in the audience? Oh. Like who, who, who came to see it? Uh, so it was really geared towards all Soundgirls events are, are basically anyone is welcome to attend, women or men. And so for this, we actually didn't exactly know who the audience was going to be, if it was going to be people who were already working in post-production sound, who wanted to get into it, or, you know, just people who work in music and other areas and, and would find it interesting. And we also, as part of the event, we had a tour of the scoring stage, some of the sound stages at Sony, uh, and also the bakery, which is a mastering facility there. So what we found just from the questions is it was a really wide variety of people. We had filmmakers who also did sound. We had, you know, people who were kind of working in Los Angeles and just looking to, you know, figure out how to take the next step. And then we also had people who came from out of state. I mean, there were people who drove in and flew in for this event, which was pretty cool. That is really cool, actually. Yeah. And so Sound Girls... This is a volunteer organization that was started by two women in California who both have long, successful careers working as live sound techs. So Carrie Keys and Michelle Spalchik-Petnato, who both have worked in front of house and monitors for like big touring acts. Uh, so my understanding is they first started Sound Girls as a way to network, like just create a network for women to get to know each other, who the few women who were working in live sound. But it seems like they've been working really hard to expand the reach of that network and sign up chapters all over the world. So there's groups of sound girls in every city, it seems, starting to pop up. But also to expand the mission so that they're starting all kinds of initiatives for women working in uh, not just in live sound, but in production now. Like, it seems like there's sort of an expansion into bringing 
women who are working in film and TV into that network. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's really incredible because Soundgirls was started in 2013. So for an organization that's only been around for five years to have chapters all over the world is is pretty amazing. And it's all grown organically. And, you know, there's members who do everything from theater sound to music mastering to a wireless audio tech for NASA. Um, and so, and one of some of the things they do, um, you know, they have the website that's really active. They do a profile every month, uh, about a woman. And, and part of that is just to give them credit, but also to, to be a role model for young women who are trying to get into audio. So in post-production, we've done some on Car- people like Carol Urban, Sherry Klein, Debbie Dare, uh, and myself. And it's been growing in areas where we have volunteers, um, and so at the beginning, Sound Girls was really live sound because that's where Michelle and Carrie work, and that that's. But it wasn't really their goal. And so for me, I attended my first Sound Girls event in 2015. I've been volunteering ever since. So I've done, uh, I've written blogs, I've helped organize events like this one, um, and I've met a lot of people to mentor and offer support. It's it's just really a a community that helps you find people, whether you're looking to give help or whether you want to receive help. That's where it's kind of nice that Sound Girls that. You know, for me, I blog, I just like writing. And so if I have a free hour sometime or, you know, I got a lunch break or something or someone asks me a question, like either through Soundgirls or through my website, I'll just quick write something up and, you know, throw it up there. And even the face, they have a great Facebook group for Soundgirls. So it's like, even if you just, you're taking a 10 minute break, you can get on there and you see someone's asking a question about post-production and you want to throw in a response. I mean, it's really crowdsourcing all of us uh, and kind of like what you guys are doing too. It's basically crowdsourcing um, to get information to people who who just aren't in the room. So, do we want to talk quickly about the uh, production sound initiative that Soundgirls announced recently? Yeah. So, basically, um, Soundgirls supports women across the industry, and we recognize production sound as an area that needed additional support. And one of the barriers getting jobs in production sound, regardless of gender, is gear. In post-production, we learn a new tool, like a plug-in, we can just download it. Or if you work at a studio or intern, you can basically learn on someone else's equipment, even if it's on your own time. But when you're in production and you're trying to get more experience, you don't have the gear and you're not on set every day, how do you learn it? So it's a catch-22 because you really need credits and experience to get more job opportunities. And that's why our focus is to get gear into the hands of people who need it for more experience. So this is an initiative in the development stages. So the idea is at this stage that Soundgirls in California is going to be receiving donations essentially of specifically location production gear so that they can put packages together to loan out to women who are just starting to try and get their first gigs, right? Exactly. And so we're still working out the details, um, but it's going to be based first on need. Uh, We haven't ruled out long-term equipment rentals, but it depends on how many kits we can put together and what the demand is for them. Um, And we'll probably have more information on the website, which is soundgirls.org, when it gets developed more. But the, the first and the main goal right now is just to get these kits put together. Yeah, which is the reason I wanted to mention it on our podcast, because I feel like the listenership of tone benders, not just in California or the United States, but around the world, might be good resources for accessing donations of equipment for an initiative like this one. So I put that out there to tone benders listeners to go to soundgirls.org to check out what kind of equipment they're looking for and find out more about it and figure out how you can get involved if you want to. 
Yeah, it's a really great cause, and uh, it would be awesome if the community could kind of rally around, because I think it's going to be what the community makes of it. So the more people that can uh, show interest and get involved, the more it could expand, and who knows what it could become. Yeah, and if, if we can put together more kits, then then the goal, too, is to be able to pick other Soundgirls chapters to regionally host equipment and possibly a shipping program for them. So yeah, if we have any listeners that are interested or may have connections to help us, we'd love to hear from you. That's awesome. So maybe we'll jump to our panel discussion that uh, we're here to listen yeah. to. And uh, I'll let Tim kind of uh, go through who was on the panel. Okay. So it was moderated by Anne-Marie Slack, whose background is in sound editing and supervision and is currently the executive organization services at Motion Picture Sound Editors. On the actual panel, we have Carol Urban, who wears many hats, but principally works as a re-recording mixer for TV series like Grey's Anatomy, among many others. Carol and I are actually uh, in talks to get her on this podcast shortly as part of a, a roundtable discussion, and she's been really awesome so far. Uh, supervising sound editor Kate Finan, who Tonebender listeners would know of from episode 46 when she we did a full episode with her. And that's actually one of my favorite episodes of the podcast because... There's lots of great feedback on that one. Yeah, we got tons of feedback because she... A lot of our episodes just talk about, uh, not necessarily gear, but, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of uh, making sound, where she talked a lot about the idea of creating a, a work environment, which uh, we hadn't talked about really before or since. I really enjoyed that conversation with her. She was really smart. And she's the co-owner of Boombox Post in Burbank. And then Annalie Blank, who is a re-recording mixer. Um, she's on the show that I don't know if anybody's ever heard of. It's called Game of Thrones. Uh, she's won like four Emmys for it. And, uh, what she's working on next is whatever she wants to, I'm assuming. <laughs> um, so yeah, she's, uh, taking off. You're going to hear her name a lot in the future because I think that, uh, she's super talented. And then, uh, also April, you were on it. Do you want to just give us a quick background of yourself? Uh, oh, quick. Um, I started <laughs> out in music, but I've basically been in post-production for about 15 years now. I work for FX networks, um, but I've, I've worked in you know, reality TV mixed the bachelor for like five years. Um, I've kind of basically, if you've, if it's an audio job from music editing to working in a machine room, I've done it. Five years of the bachelor. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're going to have to get you back on for an entire episode because I want to hear the. Dirt. Yeah, exactly. Uh, cool. Thanks April for being with us today. Uh, we're going to listen to the panel and, uh, we'll come back after that. So let's jump in. Here's Anne Marie Slack moderating this panel. Um, all right, so thank you for coming to this event tonight. Um, I want to thank our panel as well. Um, so I gave these ladies some questions that I thought would hopefully uh, be pertinent to maybe the direction that we're intending with this panel and also could be fun to get some background and learn on uh, how these women got to where they are now. One of the questions was, what was that moment or what was the thing that made you decide, yeah, I want to work in post-production. I want to be a mixer. I want to be an editor. Carol? It, okay, all right. All right. <laughs> um, um, I knew that I wanted to work in audio, but I'm from Southern Virginia and it's a very small town. If I was going to work in post, it would probably be like the 700 Club or Pat Robertson or something. That wasn't going to happen. No, it's just not me, man. Um, so so um, I, I knew that I wanted sound. Um, I was uh, sight impaired as a child. 
Um, so uh, I was actually um, legally blind until about the age of five. And I had an operation to correct that way before lasers, stitches in the eyes, yo. Um, so <laughs> it was... But I identified people by the sound of them in my very early life, and I identified um, where things were located. Principally, I had kind of fly vision. I had optical input, but it was like multiple kind of floating images. I had muscular control issues. So when that was uh, fixed, uh, everything seemed really big, but sound was very safe, and it's always been very safe. Um, so I did the traditional music thing, but I never really liked performing. I didn't recognize that there was really anything else you could do to make racket in life if you weren't going to perform because I'm from a small southern town and that's, you know, clearly if you're into sound, then you need to be a musician. Um, so I fell in love with the front of house. And uh, when I graduated from a, an art school in high school, uh, it was kind of like a fame school kind of thing, the Governor's Magnet School. I was in performing arts and um, we were had a touring musical after we graduated in Japan, which was a fabulous opportunity. Um, but... Uh, there was a situation where at one point they needed uh, someone to take control of the board due to you know, emergency or what have with the individual who was hired. And I was nerding so hard on it that they <laughs> they were like, you know, Carol, you should probably talk to whoever they're going to hire. And I'm like, why would you hire somebody I have an understudy? <laughs> so I'm like, you know, and uh, I think that was pretty much the last time I, I uh, really had to perform. And I, I went to college and focused on post-production because uh, I recognized not only could you do it for front of house, but you could also rewind and continue to mess with stuff, <laughs> which was really, really attractive. So, uh, and I have a, a total nerdery for uh, film and television. I am the kid who won't go outside to play. So I made that my career and I went to college for it and I went out and I, I've been like a, you know, a dog with a bone ever since. It's, that's, that's what I do. This woman hustles. I know. She does. I know from experience. I saw her at 2 a.m. once after doing a double shift, and she's like, I think I'm just going to stay up and go teach a class so that I can go do double shift tomorrow. I, mean, she was I was just... teaching spin class. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very interesting because my, my brother was blind, actually. Yeah. Uh, he was born blind and was blind his whole life, and he is definitely the reason why I got into uh, sound. It's definitely why I first ended up in music because watching him uh, teach himself how to play mm -hmm. multiple instruments and, you know, going into his room with the black light on and the Zeppelin poster and the Pink Floyd poster and just like, man, this is so cool. But it, it was interesting because then when I turned to post and I would play for him these things that I was editing mm -hmm. and, you know, without the picture and he just, uh, his mind was blown. Like, yeah. it, it, like, and that was always my goal. Like when I taught uh, editors, um, I would tell them to turn off their monitor um, a lot of times I would edit backgrounds and fully, but um, so atmospheres, uh, I really liked doing in sound design, but I would make the editors I was training turn off their monitors and I'd be like, I should be able to know where we're at and what sort of mood is going on with the picture based off of what sound you're putting in. Kate, how about you? Um, so I feel like mine is a little bit more meandering. It's not as fantastic <laughs> as Carol's. Um, but basically, I was a clarinet player, and I knew in high school that I wanted to go to a conservatory and be a musician. But I was sort of torn because I was really into math and physics as well. And I just like really wish that I could do both things. And I had a friend who, another woman who actually came to me and said, hey, I've heard there's like this major where you can go to a music conservatory at some schools around the country. And you can also just then major, get a bachelor's in science in 
sound technology, which I had never heard of um, being from Wisconsin. And again, you know, just being a musician. Um, and so I looked into it and I applied to a number of schools that were, had really good clarinet teachers and I could study and have the possibility of going on to be a classical musician, but um, also get a degree in this trade. And I just, I fell in love with it. I did an internship in music um, engineering, which was really what my program was geared toward. Um, and I had thought that I would be an engineer for classical music. And it turns out there's not really a big market for that out there. <laughs> I, there is here for being if you're on a scoring stage or something, but um, in a lot of other places, that's not very popular. So rock music was not really my thing. Um, I found that out after recording a lot of bands all night long um, for free. So then I got an internship in post-production, which in Chicago, where I was, is largely commercials. And I realized that that was really a passion of mine, but commercials are really um, tedious, or they were for me. I'm sure they're, they're great work. Uh, but I, so I decided to, you know, drop everything, move to Los Angeles and try and work in the industry. Everyone said, well, when you don't make it, just come home again. And I said, I'm, I'm never coming back here again. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> So you made it to spite them all. <laughs> I like it. Um, Anna, how about you? Any aha moment that led you down this path? Where do you start? That's weird. Um, I used to dance with New York City Ballet. and But at the same time, I was really into going to my fish concerts and recording them. <laughs> so I got injured and the conductor of the ballet had showed me Pro Tools. Um, I didn't go to college. I moved after I was kind of didn't know what to do with my life. That's all I did was dance. Um, I looked up a trade school that was six months and I learned audio engineering randomly. Um, and it was like everybody was there to make beats for Dre. And I said, you and your mom are going to make beats for Dre. Um, and then I got a job at uh, the Village Recorder, which is on the west side here, and worked my way up to be an assistant engineer. And then I got hired by Rick Rubin, and I worked with him for two years, worked on a lot of great records. It was, even though your work, I was working with like Johnny Cash, and the only record I ever got fired off was uh, Chili Peppers because Anthony Kiedis didn't want a woman engineer in the room. And uh, I never got paid for that still. Um, <laughs> just invoicing record labels. I was eating chicken broth. Um, even though I was getting paid, it would become like eight months later. Um, and my friend was Danny Elfman's personal assistant. And she's like, hey, Danny needs some help in the studio. And I was I'm like, who's that? Girl for the Elfman. Um, <laughs> so I got hired and I built two of his studios. And then... Worked with him on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Corpse Bride and recorded his vocals. And then I was like, oh, film is creative. And he wrote a letter to Tadio, and that's how I got a job. And Tadio, I kept calling. I was like, you're the best, right? I should work at the best. We're not hiring. And so I just showed up one day with a letter written from Danny Elfman in a suit. I didn't know that people in post-production don't really dress up. Uh, and I got made fun of, like, you know, one, of the, one of the, you know, engineers that helps the studio is like, who's this girl coming in a suit? 
I was like, my mom told me to dress up for interviews. <laughs> so <laughs> I got the job and it was working in the vault, which really was an ego death for me because after working with on Johnny Cash's last record, I was like, can I log your tape? I was like, this sucks. And so I just was like, I'm going to get out of here as fast as I can. I think the first week there, I met some recordist because I heard that was a way that you can learn. And so I got hooked up and I started learning with Unsun, who works at Warner Brothers. And I was very intimidated by her. I think I still intimidated by her. (laughs) She's like, just knows her stuff. And she um, talked very fast. And I just (laughs) would come in early and stay late and still log my tapes during the day. And a month or two after that, a small TV stage was looking for a new recordist. And I interviewed for the job. Internally, in Tadio without my boss knowing when I said, hey, I'm going to work over at the other facility as a recordist. He goes, you can't get that job. You've only been here three months. You have to sit in the vault longer. And I said, logging tapes is going to make me better at that. And I left and I <laughs> became a recordist. <laughs> <laughs> Um, worked at Tadio for a while and started doing sound design in the back room while working on free projects, started doing music editing. Then I was working on like 10 projects at once. Then I filled in and was working on the scoring stage. Um, then learned more about film and, and then I was like, I'm never going to move up to be a mixer or a sound editor. Nobody's going to hire me. So I quit and I was a post coordinator on a TV show. I was like, I'll just have to work my way up and be a producer. That's how I can do it. Didn't realize that's not creative at all. And then I'm working on a pilot um, as a post coordinator. And I brought in my Pro Tools rig. I was like, should I cut you guys some sound? They're looking (laughs) looking at me like I'm crazy. Finish that project. Um, And then... You know, I was kind of floating and then a mixer asked me if I'd want to, you know, try out to be an effects mixer. And I said, is this a joke? And he gave me a mixing interview and I didn't really know what I was doing, but he hired me and he really helped me, uh, Andy D'Addario, and on CSI New York and Brothers and Sisters. And then he... An excellent proponent for women. I also got to yeah, he really He's a fabulous he man. Yeah, he, very talented. Great. He was a great mentor. Mozart and, in the Jungle, transparent. Also, he mixes those. Transparent, yeah. Kingdom. And he got double booked. And so I said, well, why don't I just take over your shows? I'll mix dialogue. He was like, huh? I was like, come on, just show me. Then I can be the boss. (laughs) (laughs) And so he sat down with me for a while, and he showed me how to mix dialogue, and then I did those two shows. And then I was out of work for a while, and I wasn't really getting jobs because I haven't really been doing it. And you look at my credits, it's like just as really like a whole bunch of freebie short films and that you never heard of. And CSI New York and people are like, eh, you know. When I first had my company, Widget Post, um, I think we were in our second, almost a third year. And uh, I was at this women in film event. Um, and there was a panel of different women. Um, one of them happened to be Laura Hirschberg. And uh, re-recording mixer, she's up at Skywalker, 
extraordinary, amazing mixer. Isn't she still the only female re-recording mixer to receive an Oscar? Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Oh, Karen. Well, no, no, no. no. Karen Baker is sound. That's sound sound editorial. editorial. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, re-recording mixing. Re-recording, re-recording when Laura mixing. won, I was yeah. like, damn it, she got it first. Yeah. I know, right? I know. <laughs> yeah, um, and it was uh, it was interesting because when I, I remember talking to Laura saying, like, really, you know, I mean, there's only a few female mixers in town. And, and at that time in 2002, uh, 2003, it was Sherry Klein, who unfortunately could not attend tonight. Because she's working. Because she's working. <laughs> it was Melissa Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Laura Hirschberg and uh, Debbie Dare, Debbie yep. Dare yep, yep. and Anna. And that was Anna Belmer. That was basically it. Um, and uh, yeah, Carol's right. We're at like 14 now. So yeah, solace. <laughs> the number's going up. It's yeah. That's a decent brunch club. <laughs> um, so yeah, very inspiring, Anna. Thanks for sharing those stories there. Um, April. <laughs> It's it's funny. My path is actually kind of similar to Kate's in that I thought I wanted to be a classical violinist. I went to school a year for it and I was like, I can't stand sitting in a practice room. But ironically, I could sit in a mixed room for 16 hours and not even think twice about it. Um, I uh, I wanted to be a scoring mixer or, you know, even classical music mixer. Um just I, I did a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and I, I was in maybe the last three months of my master's degree and um, did a recording with a, a really well-known producer. And I remember almost literally falling asleep during the session. And I was like, this is not for me, but I'm about to graduate. So what am I going to do? Um, I took a post-production class and I hated it. Um, in retrospect, it's because I just didn't... Um, the way they were presenting it, and you know, and if you're only getting it kind of piecemealed, it's hard to see that it's creative and that it can be, you know, it, as much of an outlet as music or art or other things. Um, so I graduated. I moved to L.A. I was like, you know, I'll give myself six months. We'll see how it goes. Um, I knew three people. I put an ad on Craigslist and I was like, I want to be people who work in the entertainment industry. <laughs> I got about 80, 90 responses, uh, all from guys. <laughs> one of them is now my husband <laughs> yeah <laughs> he was an audio guy and he and he uh, uh he was like you know he said hey we should get together for a beer or 10 i'll show you know i'll show you my purple 1176 you know purple face 11 or whatever um <laughs> but he also he would turn out we had a mutual friend and so he kind of helped me introduce me to some people so i mean i basically can trace back everyone i know in the entertainment industry to these like three people that I knew in LA. And I had someone help me kind of find some work in the classical music industry because I had some experience, you know, doing recording. So I got into places like UCLA, the Colburn School. Um, but I was like, you know, this is just, that's not the path I want to go on. I met a scoring mix, mixer who's a, one of the, you know, still is one of the leading guys. And, um, and he said, I said, what would you do if you were me? He said, if I were you, I would go work in post-production. I wouldn't go pursue a career in music right now. He said, you know, I have a, a kid, I have a mortgage, and the stage I'm working at is dark for three months this summer. It's basically, you know, he's not working. And, and he said, and then, you know, you in your free time, go do music, and then eventually, you know, you can build up in scoring. And that's pretty much what I did. I, I uh, took a job selling equipment from companies that were going out of business. So again, you know, I just moved to LA, I'm like gung-ho, and I'm helping inventory equipment, you know, 
mic collections and stuff because the studios are going under. Um, but through that, I met a studio owner of a post-production studio who, um, who they were like, oh, you know the building? You know what key goes to which thing? You know how the alarm system works? Hey, can we hire you? Like, so it wasn't even because I had a master's degree in audio or that, you know, <laughs> I had connections. It was literally because I knew the, the security system. So they hired me as a PA and assistant scheduler. And this kind of goes to what Anne was saying earlier about just taking whatever opportunity comes your way. Um, you kind of got to, I remember George Massenberg, who's one of my professors saying to me once, he said, um, there's going to be a lot of good opportunities, or there's going to be a lot of opportunities, you just have to pick the ones that you want. And I think that's good advice. You know, you kind of got to look at it like, what could this bring me? And so by being assistant scheduler, I'm picking up the phone or, you know, the, the studio owner is call, telling me, hey, can you call Vince and, and book him for a session tomorrow? So I'm getting to know the mixers. I'm getting to know why they're hiring the people they are. Um, and I'm also learning like, hey, if you're nice to the scheduler, you're more likely to get called. That is solid advice. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, and what I found since then is it's like, those are the people that, you know, I can be like, hey, how much are you guys paying? Like, like what's the, like, seriously, because that's a tough thing to know. Like, what should I be charging? Especially different stages in your career. So I was PA, which, you know, PA is basically, you know, picking up lunches, taking out the trash. And, and similar to your experience, I'm going, I have a master's degree and I'm taking out the trash. So a uh, couple months in, there's a session supposed to start and a computer's down, like totally dead. And they've got all the mixers in there. They've got all the machine rooms. They got people, they got all the assistants and, and they're just like, they cannot get this computer up and running. And it, you know, it has some session on it that they have to have in 15 minutes. And me being like, you know, total computer nerd. I'm like, you know, I kind of, I'm going, oh, should I say something or not? Has anyone tried like, you know, this, this thing? And like, no, we haven't. So they try it. And sure enough, computer works. So that day I got my promotion into the machine room. <laughs> <laughs> And a, and a pay raise too, I think. So, um, and another that's another one where it's like if I would have seen a job listing for like machine room operator, I would have been like, why would I be doing that? But in retrospect, that's where I learned. Like I met, I'd met a ton of mixers, editors, sound supervisors, um, producers. You know, like everyone because back then everything was tape based. So like producer would come in, they'd hand you the tape, they'd go do their mix review. You know, with the mixer. And then afterwards, they have to lay back everything to the tape. So then I'm having to, to listen, you know, for kind of doing quality control. And, um, and then the producer, whoever comes back, and they get the tape from me. So it's like they, they're putting a face to a name, which is something you don't really get if you're just like a sound editor or, you know, even a pre-dub mixer. You know, there's certain jobs where you just don't get that FaceTime. Um, but yeah, from there, I... You know, I, I was at a facility where I just got, they they had a Foley stage. So they were like, hey, do you want to do this Foley session? Sure. And they kind of coached me enough, you know, to figure it out. That's where I learned how to do ADR. Um, I was assisting on a dub stage. And that's another job that like, you know, you think about, oh, I'm going to be assisting. I got to sit in the back of the room while they're mixing these incredible shows. It was a, a two-man or two-person dub stage. Um, and even though I'm sitting in the back of the room, you know, and everything's bass heavy, I'm getting to see 
Like, I'm seeing what the meters look like. Okay, the effects mixer hits play. And okay, well, he's doing his backgrounds and they're kind of sitting here on the meters. Or the dialogue mixer, okay, well, he's doing his pass like this. Or I can see what he's doing for his EQ on the screen. So even if I can't hear the same as like if I was sitting in the chair, there's still so much that you can learn by observing other people. And I think that's something that gets lost today where, you know, it's really easy to say like, oh, I'm just going to go be a sound editor and, and edit all my stuff and find all my work and work in my home studio and all that. Like there is something to be said about balancing, doing your own work and, you know, working for other people and learning from other people. Um, so pretty much from there, I, I guess I should come back around. So a uh, good friend of mine, Darren Fung, who's a composer, uh, I met him in college in Montreal. Uh, I was doing my master's and he was finishing his, his degree in composition. And I used to do recordings for him for pizza and beer. And it was like, you know, short films, just little things. So that was how many years ago now? 15 years. Uh, he moved to L.A. He's doing incredibly well with his career. And he's like, hey, April, do you want to fly with me to Canada and record a 100-piece orchestra? You know, it's, it's these relationships of the people that I knew when I was just getting started that are now bringing me these really cool opportunities. So it all, it all comes back around full circle. And I really am doing kind of what that mixer said, which was like, learn what you can. You know, if you have something you, you really want to do, just try to keep, you know, keep in the back of your mind, but you know, you'll eventually get there. Um, I think it helps us segue into my next question pretty well, which is each of you is going to have certain technical as well as uh, maybe soft skills or characteristics that apply to your job to, uh, I don't know, make the job uh, better for you, keeps you fired up on it, but also just it, it just makes it all work so it's easier for you. Mm -hmm. um, Carol, for what you do as an editor and as well as a re-recording mixer, what sort of uh, technical skills do you think are important to have to go into that? And then after that, what are sort of the soft skills that have helped you get the work? Um, I think the soft skills are actually key to getting the work. There's so many people who can do the job, who know how to do the job, um, that that's not a question. You just need to have that. Like that's a baseline. Like you need to know your know your tools, know your technology, have some flexibility and workflows that you understand. You just need to always have that cycling. Like this summer I had a little time off, so I beta tested three pieces of software. You know what I mean? Because that's what you do, right? You know what I mean? That's what you do. Yeah, you know, I, I read her blog, which is amazing. You know, like I, I, I listen to podcasts. I, you know, I nerd out. You know, I, I watch things over and over. I stop, hit, and play. And I, I you know, I just finished a, a horror film. So I watched a bunch of horror films. And I tried to look at what pop culture was saying was scary today. Because what's scary today isn't scary 10 years ago. Is -na 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 -na, you know, and something can go from cheesy to terrifying in about five years, you know, um, so like, you know, you, know, you, you I, I observe and I, I nerd, but that's kind of baseline. Like if you're professionally competing, I feel like, yeah, you got to check all that. You like know, you don't need to put on your resume that, you know, pro tools. Yeah. If you, you shouldn't if, even be applying. If you, you shouldn't don't. even be there. Yeah. You, you got to know that. Yeah. You just got to solid know that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but, um, the soft skills are really what gets you the job and it's what maintains the job. Um, for instance, I feel like uh, I have uh, identified a new challenge recently in what I do as a re-recording mixer. I feel like 
I have established a good set of storytelling skills that I have observed through narratives that I enjoy, that I, that I have observed, other mixers, other things that they've employed, that they've taught me, conventions that are accepted subconsciously in the mind. My, my slogan, by the way, is I, I play mind games with sound. It's, you know, that there are psychological tricks that cue you in to feel certain ways. I feel like I have a, a pretty good palette of those tools to pull on and identify. But you're never going to be able to use those things or get the opportunity to work on projects that allow you to have that level of creativity or that level of kind of narrative enhancement or co-content creatorship, that type of authorship, um, if you can't understand the vision of the person who is actually creating the film or the producer that's actually creating the product. Um, the right answer is the answer that fulfills their vision. Um, and that was, that was a really, um, that's a really hard lesson to learn when you're starting out um, because you may know that 98.9% .9 of whatever is going to respond to this, but the particular filmmaker responds to that. You have to remember that that producer and that filmmaker, this is, this is their project that they have put so much into that they're putting into your hands and your ears to manifest for them. So you, it's important to know your audience and it's those soft skills where you recognize who your audience is and you can communicate with them in a way that you can collaborate. And sometimes that means opening their minds to maybe a suggestion or, or a concept that you have where you're adding your experience and your observation onto the problem at hand or just, you know, explaining the physics of the situation, which is really the sad part. Like, sorry, that didn't hit micro, you know, <laughs> like that type of thing. But right now my professional challenge is I'm literally trying to put on the glasses and the hat of another person's taste, you know? So, so, uh, you know, whereas I go, oh man, I don't feel emotionally connected at all when we do that. That person does. So I need to change my mind when I'm in the chair working for that person so that that does have that response to me. And at that point in time, I've seen real true masters. And I think I've had a handful of opportunities where I've really been very successful at this. But I see masters do it. Andy does it. Um, where you're able to see the taste of the person that you are performing for. And you're able to put on their glasses their hat, think the way they would think, and not only anticipate what they would want, which is actually not so hard, I'm quite good at that, but be able to suggest within the realm of the way that they think a solution that would solve another problem. Come up with something that they would come up with if they had maybe the physics information or the, the tool information that is behind what you do. And that's the, that's the trick. That that's, that's the real job. The real, I don't want people to hire me because I can remove your hiss. I mean, I can remove your hiss. But, you know, I, I want people to hire me because, like, I want us to collaborate and create a story together. You know, I want us to suck some people in. You know, I want, I want to make people at the water cooler talk about the incredible scene that made them cry, the joke that made them laugh, the scene that made them jump. Like, that's the goal, you know? And you want to manifest that from the person who had the inkling of that concept in their mind, the filmmaker and the producer. So that that's the soft skill. That's what you need. Yeah, and Kate, I think this ties into what you were saying as far as being an employer. You know, you're going to be looking for certain skills and people uh, interviewing for entry-level jobs. And and I've heard this, I've, I've spoke on a few panels and I've talked to some colleges as well. It seems like don't show up needing to be taught Pro Tools. No one has time. Or, you know, show up needing 
to be taught Pro Tools to some extent for an internship or, you know, but we, we do get a lot of applicants who come in and they just graduated college or a short program somewhere, which um, is great. And they say, okay, well, I'm here to interview to be the supervising sound editor on all your shows. <laughs> and you would be surprised how often that happens. Um, that's, that's not realistic. But uh, <laughs> as far as, as skills, I would say, um, you know, you've heard all of us talk about how we, all the different jobs that we've had and the winding path that we got to where we are. And that's because in our industry, you're hired on a per project basis, really. You're sometimes you're an employee somewhere, but a lot of times you're you're in for one episode, you're in for just the run of a series or just one movie. And so you have to keep hustling. And the question is, um, what is going to bring those clients back to you when they go back to their offices for two years developing something? And then they have to remember like, oh, who was that mixer who I really liked working with? Or who was that editor who I liked? Because I spent a lot of time in my beginning of my career hustling, having a lot of hiatuses off, spending nine months with no work and just trying to like pinch pennies and then getting another project that lasted for a couple of years and having the same thing happen again. And um, I feel like the best piece of advice that I got was when I was interning at honestly, like not the best internship in the world. But I was told your job is basically there's always downtime on a stage. And whether that's technical downtime, something's not working or just new materials have come in that need to be downloaded and it's going to take 15 minutes or whatever. Don't let the clients see that part of it. They don't need to know what's going on underneath the hood of the car. They should feel like they're there, they're hanging out, it's a party, they're having a good time. Well, all of that's happening and that is a really difficult skill to master. So when I was interning, I was told your job is to sit over there and while I do all this technical stuff and freak out because I'm not really good at my job and I'm the engineer, you just entertain everyone and make it so that they don't notice. And it's a big song and dance that you do to make that happen. It's incredibly difficult. And so doing that for someone else and being a supervising sound editor, I spent a lot of time on the mix stage really just saying, what can I do for my mixer in this social social situation so that they don't have to make small talk while they panic and crawl under a desk, you know, um, because the cables aren't working or the routing got redone by some freelancer the night before or something, some catastrophe is happening. Um, so I do that. And it's even harder when you're asked to do that for yourself. So you're internally panicking because nothing's working. No one else is in the room. It's just you. And you have to be like, oh, so have you tried that brewery down the street? You know, <laughs> the whole time. So I, I would honestly say that is a true skill to be cultivated. And if you can do that and your clients never notice anything ever going wrong, they will come back. That is very true. Um, yeah, those are skills that are so important for your client to feel like nothing's wrong. Everyone's being taken care of. Your time is valuable um, I remember when I had my company, that was the thing that, you know, I would explain to people. I'm like, check your ego at the door unless you're paying me <laughs> because, uh, you know, we are here for them. We are here to make what they need to have happen, happen. Panic is not creatively conducive. No, no, but it is contagious. And if it is one, so contagious. and if especially if the person in front of the board, sitting in the front of the room, looks like they're about to lose their shit, stone cold. Just, it is everyone in the room is going to be like, so "What cold. is going on here? No it's one knows what good. they're doing. This is a disaster." Yeah. And phone calls will be made in the hallway. My favorite phrase is, "It's going to be awesome." Yeah, they're already calling <laughs> another facility. Can can you fit us in? Yeah. We're going to switch yeah. stages and. You you know, it, it, it's just 
And as a woman, I would say too, and I, I don't want to harp on this kind of stuff, but you will be the first one to take the fall. They will say, who is that little lady up there making a mess of this? And so, the panic that you show is 10 times more than the panic they receive as a female. They will, that is true. They interpret your unsteadiness as bigger than their unsteadiness. But do you, do you, I know I feel this way. I'm curious if you guys feel the same where I feel like I've become more, not assertive in these situations, but more like, I got this under control. Everything's cool. Yep. Just take a lunch, you know, take your lunch break. We'll be cool. And the thing is, I wouldn't normally talk to people that directly, but I feel like in a situation yep. like that, that, that I tend to be yeah. like, you know, they and they, people want to feel that the situation is under control. So offer a solution, say, this is what hap is happening. Don't mention the problem. You know, we're all, hey, we're all going to Porto's. <laughs> but every once in a while, you get a producer that knows exactly what is going on. Truth. And <laughs> yes. it is and not scary. a time yeah. for small talk. No. There, and so another, like skill is to know when to be playful when to not yeah, i mean true. um if we have like a problem most of the time i will text our post supervisor meet me in the hallway my mixed partner will keep working so our director doesn't know because a lot of times the directors don't really know what we do like they do but they don't they're like yo raise the foley's and i said no i do music <laughs> you know um so I get that but, too it's like yeah. <laughs> i want signs on the chairs <laughs> yeah <laughs> so as long as you're up front with the money guy and the yeah post supervisor like hey our computer crashed if it takes too long don't worry about it we'll work it out on the back end like, yeah I'll, I'll stay on my own time like you just make it right and know that they're taken care of so then he doesn't say me i need an hour of downtime and then call the studio and then it becomes more of a big deal actually thinking about how um how to handle this say as an assistant or you know uh you're in the machine room you're you're the client services person like once something's going on on the stage it's actually a problem for everybody and that's the thing about working for a studio is it's it's um it's almost like a family it's like one person's having a problem and everyone still kind of has to come in and help but you have to know like if you're the assistant on the stage um you want your mixer to know that you you have things under control that you're doing something to help fix the problem. You know, a computer's down. Well, the mixer is probably dealing with it, but is there something you can do? Uh, I worked when I was assisting. Um, I remember we had two, some two of the first D commands in town. So the mixers like literally didn't know how to use them. So there'd be times where they'd be like, you know, come over here and they'd be like, where do I find the trim for blah, blah, blah. Like they're just features they didn't know. And I'm going, I have no idea what this thing means. I don't know what touch latch means. I've, you know, I've, and, and, but I'm going through the manual like, okay, that's what this means. And that's where this button is. And then I kind of go back in and, and they're working the whole time. Be like, what's this thing, you know, and I could show them what to do. And, and that was actually one of the things that, that I think helped those mixers to be like, we want April we want to give her a chance, you know, like mixer calls and sick, you know what? We want April to give, give it a shot because they knew that I had their back. So then they wanted to have my back, but it's, it's, it's a tough balance too, though, between like, you, you want to help, but like for me that day where I, I was like, you know, Hey, has anyone tried this computer thing? Because you don't want an intern on their first day being like, you guys couldn't all figure this out. How about this thing? So it's a really like fine line between like, what can I do to help? But wh what are the boundaries of my job? You know? 
and you, you do get people where it's uh, someone in client services who could be mixing in theory, you know, but a lot of what you're learning in, in those positions is trust and, um, you know, how to communicate with people and, you know, how to present yourself. And, and, and you know, like Carol was saying, what, uh, should I, should actually, Anna was saying this about, should I be funny right now or should I be serious? And even with clients, you kind of have to feel out, and, and I find this especially, um, you know, you'll get some people who they want you to be the leader. They want you to be like, all right, we're going to do this thing now. And, and they're asking you, well, what do you think about this? And you go, well, I think this is good, or I, I don't think this is good. But then you get people who they want to be in charge. And at that point, you you are the server. You know, you here is tonight's dinner. What would you like? You know, and it's a very different style of how you communicate with, with the, the people around you. Yeah, it takes yeah. practice. <laughs> yeah, I feel like actually, um, and not that I, uh, I'm ever really living in that land of men versus women when it comes to, uh, you know, the work that we do. But I do find um, having worked in this for 20 years and been around a lot of people, um, I do find that the women have that adaptive aspect Certainly, like, you know, the sound supervisors I've been around and the mixers that I've been around, um, they do identify that moment of, okay, we're going to act this way now or we're going to focus on this right now, um, where it's just like, now's the time for compromise. Um, yeah, and I know uh, at least a couple of us on the panel have have, have gotten projects with uh, a producer or someone who who... I don't want to say it has a reputation for not being the easiest to work with. <laughs> and that part of why that they connected to you is maybe because as a woman, you oh, weren't yeah. threatening or that you could communicate yeah. with them in a way that they connected. And I'm talking men, men or women, you know, and DC, they, I, they used to tease me that, uh, that I got my job because I, I got along with everybody's clients that they couldn't get along with. Being everybody says be a good communicator, but like, how do you accomplish that? But we all have had really, like, really difficult clients, I think, who have unreasonable expectations, who maybe need to leave the mix stage all the time, then come in and throw stuff or want to spend the whole mix standing up, like literally over Pacing. the head of the mixer and <laughs> writing one note per page and flipping them. You know, we've seen it all. But the, when people complain about stuff, um, if you just nod your head and say, okay, okay, you know, you're probably going to get fired, uh, in my opinion. And so what you need to do is they're trying to tell you a problem that they have. And all you have to do, and not all you have to do to keep your job, because, you know, sometimes it's not possible. But a lot of times what's necessary is they just want to be heard, yes. right? And so if understood. you just repeat yeah. back to them exactly what they said to you, and then you say, and this is what I'm going to do about it, and then you finish that sentence, that goes like a million miles compared to your average Joe who's sitting in the chair. And you can really, you can save a lot of situations that seem, one, like they can't be saved, and two, like maybe you don't want to save them um, in that way. And you'll be happy later when you're on hiatus and that person gives you a call again and you think you never wanted to work with them and, and then it turns out that you did. And a lot of times you can build a trust. I've had people yeah. who start out where you're like, so I hear what you're saying and you're feeling this. So I'm going to do that. And I think it's going to address this. I, I will take, I, I got you, right? It starts out that way. Years later, you're like, yeah, I got you. It's cool. All right, sweet. I'm going to go get coffee. Totally different situation. Yeah. You build trust. So, you know, our, 
since our original intent was definitely to uh, address what's important to you guys um, who might be wanting to get into post or do a career change, um, I think now would actually be a good time to open to some questions that are a little more specific to what's important for you to know. Hi, my name is Jasmine Espy, and I currently go to USC and I'm getting my master's in journalism arts. And so I want to be a documentarian, but I've also, for since I was in high school, have done post-production and recording, you know, um, work and whatnot. And so I got into tracking um, and recording back in Detroit, where my hometown is. And I'm wondering how practical is it for me to want to balance both of those and to be a documentarian, but also wanting to get into post-production and do that type of hustle as well. I know two mixers who are documentary makers. And it's funny because I think the the mixing comes first for them or it came first. And then it was just like, I have this thing I have a passion about. And I think you naturally learn no matter where you are in the industry, like you're going to learn other stuff. Like I work, my, my uh, department that I work in, we have three audio mixers and like 10 editors. So I'm hanging out with editors all day. I can go in the room and kind of see how they're doing stuff. And they do the same with me. So I, I think it's, it's totally, it's totally doable. It's just a matter of like, what path do you want to go down to pay the bills? And what is the passion project that you know, is it the documentary that could be on the side and, and, you know, might take a few years or do you want to really go on that and just kind of do the, the post-production stuff on the side, but doing both together where it's like today I'm going to be a post-production mixer and tomorrow I'm going to be, you know, out on a documentary shoot. I don't know how tough that would be. I would also maybe, I'm all about killing two birds with one stone. Maybe you can look for filmmakers or producers to work with in the post environment that are also documentary makers. That way you can learn about distribution and you can learn about how they come up with their funding and how they organize their, their situation. So not only will you have a crew to draw on that has the experience when you make your documentary, um, but you will also be picking up useful information to help that secondary passion. And you may find that you might be super fab at what you do in post for the thing that you have passion for privately. So you may find it, that you're invaluable for documentaries as someone who is intrinsically a documentary maker. Yeah, and I would add to it that uh, you're going to have more of your story happening by being in that process of uh, making the documentary and then also being in that post aspect as well, whether it's you doing it all yourself or just being aware of what's involved in it and knowing who to bring on for the work that's being done. Picture editor is also going to be your lifeblood for a documentary. A good picture editor. That's a lot of work. Good yeah. production sound guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or gal. Or gal. Hi. Uh, my name is also Jasmine. Um, I uh, am aspiring to break into the post-sound world and have been for a while. So hearing all of your stories is very encouraging because... I think it can be a challenge sometimes to envision a future where any of that happens. <laughs> um, but I guess my question for you is, um, since you've all been doing this for a while now, if, if you had to start again today, presently as the industry is, is there anything that you would change about your approach to getting onto this path? Um, and is there any advice that you'd give to someone? Great now? question. Don't be so hard-headed. 
<laughs> I was one of those people who were like, I'm going to sound supervise your movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have tenacity you just need to know like when to reel it in yeah. I think I would have been more tenacious actually yeah like I was always uh, for a very long time in my career I felt like if I was just the productivity engine the dependability engine that the opportunities were going to come towards me and while that's required to have those opportunities to come towards you you need to speak up and it was actually a producer that said to me uh, you know that you need to you need to stand up. You need to raise your hand. You need to say, what is it that you want? So, yeah, I think I would have done that earlier. I think I would have left D.C. earlier and put my butt in the wind of L.A., <laughs> tried it again because it's, it's terrifying. But um, it, it was a good thing. Um, and I would say just since you're starting out in your career, I do think that it's, it's important. You've heard all of us talk about all the crappy jobs that we had along the way, all the things that we thought maybe weren't really getting us to that end point. And none of us are that old and we all got there. So it's really important to keep in mind that like you have some time, that old. It, it'll happen. And so you don't need to start at the top. And not only do you not need to, you're not going to start at the top. So don't beat yourself up when you start at the bottom. You should coming out of school or coming out of, you know, a technical program or coming maybe from a different career, expect to have an entry level position. And that doesn't mean that it needs to be a crap position. It just, that just means that it's appropriate for the amount of experience that you have. So I'm talking working in the machine room, being a mixed tech, um, being an assistant, making the coffee, doing the scheduling. Those are all things that like April and Annalie talked about. They, they put you in a position to learn so much about all the inner workings of a studio, all the inner workings of a production, how to handle people, who's who. And also it gives you the opportunity to see all of the jobs because you're not going to want all the jobs. That's the biggest thing that you can learn, especially from like a bad job, is you can learn exactly what not to do. Like when I'm the boss, I'm not going to treat people like this way. When I'm the boss, I'm going to pay people on time. Or, you know, I hated every single Foley session that I attended, but I loved doing dialogue editorial. Those are things that you learn when you're in those entry-level positions because you're exposed to such a wider swath of what's going on. And rather than pigeonholing yourself into, like, I'm going to be the next premier sound effects editor, you know, when you just got out of school, that's, it, it, that's really not the best place for you to start your career either. So just keep an open mind and know that every single day that you come to your job, you can learn something new and you can also work really hard and be noticed. You know, I was a secretary and at my first job and I got promoted within one month because I used to come in and I would stay late every day. I would come in early. I would ask every single day, who can I observe today? Can I, while I'm eating my lunch, can I sit in on a mix? I'm going to, you know, I get told, go home. And I would say, no, I think I'm going to stay and I'm going to check all of your cables for you. <laughs> and those are the things that I did. And, and that does not go unnoticed because you're, you're not just saying, what, what am I doing for my career every day that you're in your job? Instead, you're saying, what can I do to make your job easier for you? Yeah, just try everything because that makes you realize who you are as a person. I actually, I met a few months ago uh, a girl named Danielle Price, who is a sound editor. And, and oh, do you know Danielle? Yeah. And so she graduated maybe a year or two ago, came out here. You know, I'm, you know, she was just wanted to meet people in sound, sent me an email like, you know, hey, let's meet up for dinner. And 
And uh, and she's like, yeah, I'm working for this studio. I couldn't even tell you the name of it right now. Uh, it's a small place, like three people. We, you know, we just worked on this documentary series for Netflix. It's called Wild Wild Country. And I'm like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. She just got an Emmy nomination, you know, year out of school. And it just goes to show, like, good content can show up anywhere. Yeah, and there's um, sometimes there's the question of, uh, oh, well, should I work in a union facility or a non-union facility? And really, I mean, I feel like the key first is work. And then, um, but what I can attest to, um, having worked for non-union and union places, and I had a non-union and a union facility, um, is as non-union, there's a lot of opportunity to wear multiple hats because uh, usually it's just sort of like, look, so-and-so didn't show up and I need this done. And so there's like these different things that you can get thrown into a lot easier uh, in a non-union facility. I, I actually recommend if you're starting out that that's a great place to go to because- I did that. Yeah, yeah I did non-union and then I did union. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, and people who come, when I worked at, when I was sound supervising at Warner Brothers, it was, you know, people would email me like young women or, or guys and- say, you know, I want to work on your show or whatever. And I would just say, we can't, we can't hire you. You know, you're not in the Who union. Are you? <laughs> you have you have no experience. You know, it's 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 a lot harder to break into that and and you don't get those random opportunities thrown it, at you and that's in the middle of the night. A really good point about don't ever ask anyone well, I would say don't ever ask anyone for a job. You know, I would I tend to go under like, hey, Kate, you know, hey, I, I really like your blog. Do you want to meet for lunch sometime? You know what I mean? And use that as an opening and then and then be like, you know, how did you get to where you are? Like, could you tell me more about your career? And and the things people love to, sh- to share about themselves. And, and there's something you're going to learn from from everybody. Hey, everybody, welcome back. I'm sitting here with uh, my co-host, Teresa, as well as April Tucker. And uh, we just want to thank Carrie Keys at Sound Girls and everyone involved in making this audio available for us to share on the episode today. And uh, super big thanks to April Tucker for uh, sitting down with us and talking. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, April. Uh, I just wanted to mention one more thing before we go about Sound Girls is that there's another initiative they just launched recently, and that's the EQL directory. So that's live now. And this is like a super comprehensive global directory of women working in sound. And if you are a woman working in sound, you should get on that list. I don't know, April, if you're on the list. I am. I am. Good. So check out soundgirls.org and the Tonebender site for links to everything we talked about today, including the Production Sound Initiative. And uh, we hope that that takes off and hopefully Tonebenders can have a part in making that move forward. Yeah. So if you're out there listening to this and you have some uh, gear that's just collecting dust in the corner, (laughs) uh, see if you can find a new home for it and help some people out because everybody wins that way. Thanks again, April. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, April. And uh, everyone stay tuned for some episodes that we have coming up soon that are going to be really awesome. We have some awesome stuff coming down the pipe that I can't wait for everyone to hear. And uh, we will talk to you guys soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Tone Vendors. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. 
keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.